Psalm 75, page 529. We give thanks to you, God. We give thanks to you, for your name is near. People tell about your wonderful works. When I, chose a to- when I choose a time, I will judge fairly. When the earth and all its inhabitants shake, I am the one who steadies its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn against heaven or speak arrogantly. Exaltation does not come from the east, the west or the desert. For God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts another. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to its dregs. As for me, I will tell about him forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. I will cut off all the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Uh, I think you've got it, your Bible, 997, John 18, starting at verse 1. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus is the Nazarene, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, sheath your sword. I am, not, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander and the Jewish temple police arrested Jesus and tied him up. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was advantageous that one man should die for the people. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was a doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who was on the doorkeeper who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, "You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you?" "I am not," he said. Now the slaves and the temple police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them warming himself. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. "I have spoken openly to the world," Jesus answered. "I have always taught in the synagogue and the temple complex." where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the temple police standing by slapped Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, Give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? 
Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's slaves, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter then denied it again. Immediately a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, brothers. Uh, it's great to have the Bible read well. Um, let's uh, keep that passage open at page 997, and why don't I pray for us before we look at it. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Our Father, we do praise you that the words you have spoken are spirit and life. Please breathe on us now as you speak to us. Please would you breathe life into us as you show us your Son. Help us to trust him. Help us to worship him and help us to know our, our, our helplessness without him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the question I have for us tonight is, will you marry God's boy? Will you marry God's boy? You might have seen the TV show, Please Marry My Boy. It's the, the show where fine, upstanding Aussie males employ the surefire strategy of finding a wife, their mothers. Their mums come along and they vet potential soulmates for their sons by putting them through a series of tests, questioning them, spending time, getting them to to do a, a little bit of cooking, looking after some random kids. As they blatantly are only after one thing, a career in reality TV. Well, this this evening, uh, we get to vet Jesus as he is put to the test by his mates, the Jewish religious leaders, and the occupying Roman army. The scene we have before us is just hours before Jesus' brutal murder. It's an incredibly emotionally charged, electric bit of scripture. And the question this passage asks us is will you marry Jesus? Will you marry Jesus? Will you commit yourself to Jesus? Will you follow him in sickness and in health, for better, for worse? Some of you here tonight, for you, uh, Jesus will be irrelevant. You probably, you may have been dragged here by a friend, and he is just irrelevant. You've never given him a second thought. Some of you will be here and you'll be like, yeah, I'm a Christian, Jesus died for me, I'm on board, I'm in the club. But you treat him like a friend with benefits, someone who you visit in times of need and you ignore the rest of the time. He's your hobby, the thing that you do on a Sunday. Some of you will be struggling. You've said, I do to Jesus, but you feel like you've let him down time and time again. You're stressed, and your fear is is that Jesus will reach for the pen to sign the divorce papers. Well, however you've come through the door this evening, my prayer is, is that we would look at the last moments of Jesus' life 
as he gets put to the ultimate pressure test. That we'll understand not just how he died, we all know how he died, the carpenter snuffs it. But we'll know why he died. And we'll see his death, we'll see the cross in a whole new, sharper, HD kind of way. And we'll see that Jesus offers something extraordinary. An extraordinary relationship of satisfaction, joy, and forgiveness. My prayer is that we'll see that he is worthy of our total, lifelong, 24-7 commitment. And that he cannot just be a hobby or an occasional friend. That he is someone who we cannot but willingly and joyfully submit all of our lives to. Someone who we should love and cherish. So will you marry this boy? Will you marry this Jesus? Three reasons for us this evening. Firstly, will you marry Jesus for his cup? Will you marry him for his cup? Let's pick up the action to our first one of chapter 18. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who portrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. We're almost at the end of John's Gospel, and Jesus is a wanted man. The Jewish religious leaders have hatched their plot to assassinate Jesus, this troublemaker from Galilee. And up until now, um, Jesus has done a pretty good job of evading capture. See, he just, uh, when, when the pressure hits, he just slips away into the crowd. Just slips away. But here at the climax, there's no stealth. There's no slipping away into the crowd. In fact, Jesus makes some pretty schoolboy errors as the most wanted man as the, as the most wanted man in Palestine. See, of all the places you could hide, he chose the same walled garden that he went to time and time again with his disciples. Everyone knew that it was his local. Uh, the backstabber Judas knew that's where he goes with his, his, with his disciples. And sure enough, verse 3, Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The Bible experts reckon that uh, about between 100 and 200 men came with Judas, a combination of Romans and of Jewish temple guards. They're expecting Jesus to run, so they bring lanterns and torches. They're expecting trouble. So they bring weapons. Jesus, really, he has every opportunity to evade capture again, doesn't he? It's night, and these guys don't have night vision or thermal imaging. Even when he's within a breath-smelling distance of them, he could escape capture. Uh, 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 he asks them in verse 4, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they answered. He could have bolted, couldn't he? He could have run. He, he could have said, oh, sorry, lads, you've just missed him. He said he was, on a he was going to catch a plane for barley. But no, instead we get this extraordinary moment. Jesus says, I am he. And it triggers verse 6. Have a look with me. 
they stepped back and fell to the ground. I wonder whether that's ever happened to you. It's absurd, isn't it? It's not a YouTube stunt. It's not a, an April Fool. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. And, and the reason they behave like this is in the Greek language, the, in the Greek text that the original manuscripts were written in. See, the Greek says, Egu emi, which literally says, I am. If you've read your Bibles, you'll know that I am is the phrase that, Jesus, uh, that God uses to describe himself throughout the whole Bible. I am. I am. If I said, I am, people would probably finish my sentence for me. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Judas, the Roman soldiers, and the Jewish temple guard all hit the deck. They all hit the deck in exactly the same way as people time and time again have done as they come face to face with God in the Old Testament. John doesn't say any more about it. They don't change their mind and say, oops, sorry Jesus, we didn't realize you were God, we'll be on our way then. John wants us to be under no illusion. God is in the garden. God is in the garden, and he is about to be arrested. It's scandalous, isn't it? Scandalous. Peter thinks so. He's having none of it. He's going down fighting, and he does a Vincent van Gogh on Malchus. Verse 10, he chops his ear off. Chops his ear off. It's his Quentin Tarantino moment. But Jesus stops him. No, Peter, sheath your sword. Then in verse 11, we get one of the most important insights into Jesus' death. Have a look with me. Verse 11. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? It's crucial that we understand this. It's crucial that we understand this. Because the cup that Jesus is talking about, the cup that Jesus is talking about is the cup that he will drink as he goes to the cross. And it is the cup of God's wrath. It's an Old Testament image. There's a few cups in the Old Testament, but this is the cup of God's wrath. We, had it, we heard about it when Psalm 75 was read out. Psalm 75 says this, For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine, blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. See, this cup is the cup full of God's anger at every rebellious human heart, every human evil deeds put in a cup. Imagine if you could make a cocktail out of everything that makes you angry when you read the Sydney Morning Herald. I know that's not hard. Everything that hurts you, everything that pains you, everything that disgusts you as you read the news of our city squeezed into a cup. Now add every massacre in human history. Add a twist of uh, heartache. Every sex crime, every bombing from history the world over. Mix it up with every rebellious human heart that ever walked the planet. And imagine that cup is being held by the holy and righteous just hands of God. That is the cup of God's wrath. 
That's the cup of God's wrath. It's one vicious smoothie. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs, says Psalm 75. But in John 18, 11, it's not the wicked of the earth who are going to drink this, is it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The cup of all God's anger given to Jesus by his dad. And Jesus voluntarily takes it. He takes it and drinks it on the cross. It's a shocking image, isn't it? Of God pouring all of his anger at human sin onto his son. See, he's the one person who shouldn't drink that cup. He's the one person in human history that did not deserve to drink that cup. It's horrible. And we should feel the weight of what Jesus says there. We should be like Peter. And we should want to take the cup from Jesus' hands, for not, not to let Jesus drink the cup of God's wrath. It's weighty. It's intense. But it's also beautiful. Because in this moment, in verse 11, it shows us the epicenter of the rescue that Jesus offers on the cross. See, Jesus' death is no accident, and Jesus is no victim. He has orchestrated these events perfectly so that he can drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. He drinks the cup and he performs the greatest rescue the world has ever seen. As he deals with the greatest problem the human race has ever faced. It's the problem the Old Testament hands to the New Testament, the problem of God's wrath. As the prophets say, there is a cup. Who will drink it? Who can drink it? Who wants to drink it? Jesus enters human history and says, I'll drink it. I'll drink it so that you don't have to. Do you see how Jesus drinking this cup changes things for us. As he drinks the cup, he turns us from enemies into friends of God. It's a massive game changer. He replaces wrath with love. He replaces hostility with friendship. It's a massive game changer. We can uh, throw all kinds of problems at Jesus to solve, can't we? We can throw him relational problems, social problems, financial problems. But the Bible says our biggest need is for someone to take this cup from us. Our desperate, deepest problem is the cup of God's wrath before us. You see, without Jesus, we will drink it. Either he will drink it or we will drink it. And Jesus says, if you trust me, I'll willingly scull it for you. Every painful last drop so that you don't have to. The question is, will you let him? Will you let him? Will you marry him for his cup? The second reason tonight, will you marry him for his body? Let's pick up the action at verse 12. Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish temple police arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Jesus gets captured, and he gets taken into this kangaroo court. 
Now, what uh, John wants to tell us, what John is describing here, is that Jesus is being treated like an animal sacrifice. Just like a goat or a lamb at the Jewish Passover, so we get verses 12 and 14. Jesus being bound, just like an animal sacrifice. He's not taken to one high priest, but two high priests, just like an animal sacrifice. And in case we don't get it, in case we don't pick up on the hints, John adds verse 14. He says, Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was advantageous that one man should die for the people. See, John's reminding us of what Caiaphas has said when the Jewish uh, religious leaders are plotting to get rid of Jesus. He says this in chapter 11, verse 50. He says, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas has a problem, Annas has a problem, and they're trying to kill it. I like to think of Annas and Caiaphas as these South London gangsters, South London gangsters who are going to do away with the problem like uh, uh, by killing Jesus, just like one of those animals that we kill in the temple. Caiaphas is completely clueless, isn't he? He's muttered this prophecy and it's been written down in our Bibles to help us understand what's going on when Jesus dies on the cross. God wants us to know exactly what is happening as he dies. I wonder whether you see the irony of this whole scene. It's difficult to ignore. Annas thinks he's fast-tracking Jesus' execution so that he can have a quiet life. God is orchestrating one massive, amazing rescue for mankind. Jesus says, I've hidden no evidence. I've openly spoken to the world, in verse 20. The high priest put him on trial at night, behind closed doors, away from those crowds. Jesus calls for witnesses, and all Jesus gets is a smash in the face, verse 22. God screams at him, is this the way you answer the high priest? And the penny drops for us as we realize that standing in the dock is not a Jewish carpenter, but God's perfect and permanent high priest. Yes, we're meant to see the injustice of it all, but we're also meant to see how brilliant it is. As Jesus puts his body on the line, as he puts his body on the line, as he offers himself as both sacrifice and priest, as he hands himself over to die on behalf of his people. It's amazing, isn't it? See, Jesus turns a human despicable brutality and a kangaroo court into the most incredible rescue. The most incredible rescue. It makes the exodus and their escape from Egypt look like a bushwalk. And the murder of God means the end of death, means the end of death and the possibility of eternal life and a relationship with God. He could have stopped this fast at any time, couldn't he? 
He is the I am. He could have sent lightning bolts on these clouds. He could have flooded the room with angels and killed them dead there and then. But he chose not to. He chose willingly to give himself up. Give himself up for you. Will you marry this Jesus for his body, for his sacrifice? Uh, Will you have those words of Caiaphas ringing in your ears this Easter as the passages of the crucifixion are read to us over Easter? See, it's not just to your advantage that Jesus should die. It's absolutely brilliant. It's brilliant. See, Jesus' death means the end of death. It kills death. Jesus' sacrifice means that the door to hell is shut. And the door to a relationship, the possibility of a relationship with the creator of the universe is opened. If we would just believe and accept his sacrifice. It's an amazing privilege that we enjoy, a relationship with the creator of the universe. A school friend of mine used to date the owner of a very famous European soccer club, uh, one of the most famous soccer clubs there is, in fact. Uh, We were quite excited about it when he started dating this girl. We said, have you been? Have you played on the pitch? Have you met the players? Have you been to a house? What's it like? He wasn't very enthusiastic about the whole thing. I think he was more into rugby union. Uh, He wasn't really enthusiastic about this girl either. But, but, But we were. We were. He wasn't really bothered. But we were really excited. We can be like him, can't we, with God? Jesus has given us the most amazing relationship with the creator of the universe as he gives himself as a sacrifice. It'd be a shame, wouldn't it, if we miss the privilege of that, if we're not that bothered about the relationship that Jesus gives us. We're missing out. Missing out. Jesus offers his body so that we can enjoy a full-on, serious relationship with the God who made us. And we're missing out big time if we're just not that bothered or if we play part-time friend with him. wonder whether that's you. wonder whether you've played part-time friend with the king of the universe lately. Incredible, isn't it? As we understand who Jesus is, what he's given, it's impossible to go part-time with him. It is to your advantage that Jesus dies for us, Caiaphas says. Will you take advantage of it? Will you take full advantage of this relationship and this sacrifice Jesus has won for us? Will you marry him for his body? Well, finally tonight, will you marry Jesus for what you are not? Will you marry Jesus for what you are not? For all that Jesus gives him, Peter uh, gives Peter on the inside. Peter is on the outside in the high priest's yard, failing his very own set of pressure tests. As John cuts between Peter and Jesus, we get to see Peter against, uh, uh, in some very interesting pressure tests. See, up until now, Peter has been the model disciple. He's been Jesus' best mate. He's been the one who said that he would stick with Jesus, no matter what. 
He's the one who said, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And he's the one who tries to take on 100 100 to 200 soldiers like Scrappy-Doo in the garden. Even in the face of real danger, in verse 15, even in the face of real danger, of facing real imprisonment with Jesus, Peter is still following Jesus. You can see why Peter, why Jesus gave him the name The Rock. He's come top of the class in Manning Up class. He's keen, he's brave, he's dependable. He's the kind of people we love to do the belonging course. He'd be on every roster if he was here tonight. He'd be telling us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But under pressure, the wheels fall off Peter's enthusiasm, don't they? The wheels fall off his enthusiasm. Jesus says he is the I am. Peter says, I am not. Can't get more of a contrast. As Jesus wins, Peter fails. As Jesus gets interrogated by Annas, Peter gets it from a little slave girl, verse 17. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Peter says, I am not. As Jesus takes the heat on the inside, Peter warms himself by the fire of the, uh, by the enemy's fire. As Jesus calls for witness testimony, the guards quiz Peter outside. Aren't you one of his disciples too? Are you? Uh, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Peter says, I am not, verse 25. As they struggle to pin a crime on Jesus, Peter's aggravated assault charge from the garden catches up on him. Again, Peter denies Jesus, verse 27. Do you see the contrast? Jesus is the I am. Peter is the I am not. Jesus wins. Peter fails. We're meant to be saying, we're meant to read this, and we're meant to be saying, Peter, what are you doing? What are you doing? Can't you remember what you said to Jesus? You're meant to give your Bibles a shake when you read this. But we're also meant to look at Peter and see ourselves in him. Because he is us. Peter is the I am not in us. I wonder whether there is anything that you find impossible. I wonder whether there's anything you find impossible. I cannot click. I've never been able to do it. Uh, Can anyone click? I, I cannot click for the life of me. Never been able to do it. Well, on our own, we are as good at following Jesus as I am at clicking. We are hopeless. We are the I am nots, just like Peter. As we keep Jesus at arm's length, as we deny him and fail him. I wonder how you've been, how Peter like you've been this week. I wonder how you're doing on the I am not scale. I wonder how you're doing. Someone may have asked you the very same question that the little slave girl asked Peter. You're not one of those born-again Christians, are you? And you've crumbled just like Peter. You may have had one of those moments lately. We all will have one of those moments at some point. 
You might have, have, had, uh, you might have kept quiet when you should have spoken out. You might have blended in when you should have stood out. You, should have, uh, you might have stayed in that situation when you should have fleed, when you should have run. You see, we are the I am nots. Jesus is the I am. We're hopeless on our own uh, following Jesus. We say willingly, don't we? Put the invisibility cloak on uh, uh, so that people will not see that we're Christian in the office. We so easily disguise ourselves and disguise our trust in Jesus. And we dress ourselves up in uh, good works or church stuff that people will like. You might know that feeling well. You might be frustrated with yourself. You might be frustrated with your Peter likeness that you've let Jesus down just one too many times for your liking. The great news is, as we look at Peter, the representative of the I am nots, we see that Jesus loves I am nots. He loves I am nots. They're his dream soulmates. They're the people he's into. They're the people he wants to spend the rest of his life with. His kingdom is a kingdom of I am nots. It is the I am nots he drank God's cup for. It is the I am nots he gives his life for. It is the I am nots he calls to follow him today. I wonder whether you are an I am not. I wonder whether you realize that. You see, the past doesn't matter. What you did last week, how you let him down last week, doesn't matter. It's not about yesterday. It's not about last week. It's not about... Friday night. It's about who you love today. Do you love Jesus today? Do you love him now? In chapter 21, in a few chapters' time, we get the most incredibly moving reunion as Jesus is reunited with Peter again. This time over another charcoal fire as Jesus puts three more questions to Peter. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And three times, Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. There's no inquisition about the slave girl. There's, uh, there's no reprimand for his cowardice. Just full restoration. Oh, and, uh, and Jesus builds his kingdom on this bloke, Peter. Jesus builds his church on Peter. It's a brilliant picture of the gospel. It's a brilliant picture of the kind of people Jesus wants to marry. Well, will you marry God's boy? Will you commit to him? Will you submit to Jesus? Will you marry him for his cup? The cup of God's wrath, which he willingly drinks for you so that you don't have to. Will you marry him for his body, which he generous, generously and sacrificially gives for you to die in your place, to earn you a relationship with your creator? And will you marry him for what you are not? Your savior who loves you despite what you are, despite what you've done to him. 
Will you marry him 24-7 in sickness and in health, for better, for worse? Because as this Jesus goes to the cross, he secures a relationship which means that death can never part us. And it's an incredible thing. Let's pray together. Oh, our Father, it blows our minds when we think about what you've done on the cross. Father, when we think about the cup that you took for us, when we think about the body you gave for us, Father, it blows our minds when we think about how you did this despite what we are like. Father, help us to be committed to our Saviour. We cannot do it on our own. We are hopeless on our own. We need your help. Please help us to marry Jesus, to be committed to him, to submit to him, and know life to the full. In his name we pray. Amen.